Ezekiel obviously is a very, very unique book of the Bible. Um, and that is our focus for this morning. Um, we're going to start in Ezekiel 3, by the way. Um, the, the point of the book of Ezekiel is to, as like all prophets and all of the word of the Lord, is to call people to repentance and trust in the Lord. Uh, now, his message specifically is going out to uh, this group of people that were from, uh, that were from Judah that uh, had fallen to the Babylonians and, um, and were then about to be taken over by the Persians. This is the, same, uh, this is the same generation of Daniel. This is the same generation of Jeremiah. But Jeremiah makes no mention of the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah is a few years before Ezekiel. Uh, He makes no mention of the Spirit, so for our studies, we're skipping over Jeremiah and Lamentations, uh, and we're going straight to Ezekiel, and then obviously, then next week, we'll be with Daniel. Um, The the whole picture of what's going on, to kind of set it in history, um, we were just in Isaiah, and, and most people don't really get this kind of timeline of what's going on, so let me give it to you. Isaiah is working in about 710 to 715 B.C., Right? This is right before the northern kingdom gets taken away to Assyria and, and nine and a half tribes get lost to history. Right? Assyria wipes them out. They spread them out amongst the nations and they're out there. Uh, literally, God only knows where they went. Nobody else can keep track of it. Assyria did that on purpose. Isaiah is dealing with warning the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and all the nations around them of what the outcome of their sin and wickedness will be. The northern kingdom, as we all know, completely rejects that, and they are carried away into captivity in uh, just a few years after that, uh, before it even gets to 700 BC. Well, Ezekiel is not until the 580s. So we zoom forward 130 years, uh, where there's this whole section of history where the northern kingdom is taken away, Samaria and all of that, and the southern kingdom, the two and a half tribes in the south, Uh, which has Jerusalem and the temple and everything, are sitting there going, obviously we're better because the northern kingdom was taken away. We are the southern kingdom. We aren't taken away. Assyria was stopped at the border. We're good. And for 120 years, it looked that way. Except Assyria had their own problems at home where Babylon was taking over their capital, Nineveh, and Babylon becomes the next world power. And Babylon has expansion plans. And the people, as we, as we skipped over this time period of history, the people at the time in the southern kingdom were, were calling out the temple, the temple, the temple, the Lord will never let his temple fall. As long as we are near the temple, everything is fine. And this is where Jeremiah comes up and says, no, no, God will even see that his physical temple is destroyed, right? This same parallel, by the way, if you ever notice, happens in the, in the Gospels where, where Jesus is saying that the temple of his body will be destroyed. He will be put to death. And what is it that, what is it that Peter says to him? No, 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 no. That could never happen. That could never happen. Far be it from you that such a thing would happen to you. And what does Jesus respond? The most stern warnings ever. Don't call out the temple, the temple, the temple. I am going to be destroyed. They will tear this temple down, and I'm going to build it back in three days. Obviously, he's talking about the temple of his body. We're in a whole other time period at that point. We'll get to that when we get there. 
But at this point, what had happened was the story of Jeremiah and the fall of the southern kingdom is a whole bunch of people were saying, Babylon is coming, they're laying siege, we're going to find safety in Egypt. And a lot of them did. And what happens in the book of Jeremiah is that Jeremiah warns all of them, if you go down to Egypt, you will never return. You go down to Egypt, it'll be the end of us. And what ends up happening is they ignore him and God sends Jeremiah to go with them and they all die in Egypt. Jeremiah is a really depressing book to read. Um, and, and Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet for these reasons. Everything during his ministry is negative, failing, and ends in death. Everyone in the southern kingdom is carried away. Now, Babylon does something different than Assyria did. Assyria would lay waste to the lands. They'd bring in foreigners and mix up ethnicities and everything like this. This is where the Samaritans come from. They're, they're half Jews, half Assyrians, and all this kind of stuff later on. But in the southern kingdom, Babylon would allow Jews to stay in the land. But they're just like, we're going to take the best of your land. We're going to destroy your temple. We're going to take all the stuff from the temple. This is where, remember, uh, the story in Daniel where they're feasting with all the gold stuff from the temple in Jerusalem. That's where they got it from. Uh, all this stuff is going to be carried away. They took the best of the land and left some of the people and took the best people of the land, people like Daniel and uh, and so forth, some of, the, some of the wiser people in the land. And Ezekiel is among those who are carried out. Now, as you saw, this is on his 30th birthday. He's supposed to have been inaugurated as a priest in Jerusalem. And here he is with full knowledge that five years ago, the temple was destroyed. The priesthood was done away with. And here he is in an exiled land. His personal plans look to be on the rocks uh, with no hope of ever being anything. And God shows up to him in the most unique picture in all of scripture. And that is Ezekiel chapter one. If you ever want to just be mesmerized by something in scripture, just read Ezekiel one and try to figure it out. Uh, it is, it is the most enigmatic text of the entire scriptures. And it's this whirlwind picture of the glory of God appearing like a rainbow in the sky, but has these winged living creatures, these, uh, lofty wheels, as you were seeing there, it's, it's almost like this platformed chariot thing made up of angelic realms. The glory of God. What in the world's going on? And Ezekiel would have been asking the same thing. I have no earthly idea, quite literally, because this is nothing earthly about it. There's nothing normal about this. And the Lord commissions Ezekiel, you're going to go out. You're going to preach to the exiles now. You'd think that they'd had enough, right? No, you're going to preach to the exiles. Judgment is not over. The dealings with all these things are not over, but there's intention behind it. And the reality is, Ezekiel, I'm going to send you out and nobody is going to listen. That's a rough commissioning. Isaiah had the same commission. Isaiah 6, go out, preach this, nobody will listen. In fact, your preaching will make them harder of heart will make their eyelids heavy and their ears stopped up. This is Isaiah 6. Jesus says the same thing about his ministry, why he's using parables. He speaks in parables, why? So that they wouldn't believe those who the Lord was not calling. He says that verbatim. He's using the same picture that Isaiah and Ezekiel, both to the northern and southern kingdoms, both said this, that in the preaching of repentance to those that God is not gifting repentance to, just hardens them further. 
And that is a very, very frustrating aspect of the sinfulness of mankind. And both of these guys have to deal with this head on. Ezekiel, in ways very unique, as we saw, uh, depicts the frustrations of this. You are going to be laid siege in Jerusalem. He talks some in reflex, some in future. Um, and in all these ways, he deals with the Spirit of the Lord on a level that no other prophet has dealt with uh, yet. Um, the Spirit of the Lord throughout the book of Ezekiel, and we're not going to look at all the references because there's too many, um, and throughout the book of Ezekiel, comes to Ezekiel, like grabs him, sometimes by like the, the, the shirt of his back and drags him around. Sometimes he just gathers up his hair, lifts him from the earth and drags him around and sets him in a place and says, preach, <sighs> drags him somewhere else. Do this. Like it's such a unique relationship he has because all through this, the spirit of the Lord is not only doing these things, but is also audibly speaking to him. That has never happened. We've never had the spirit of the Lord of his own come out and say things audibly. Never had that experience. He is the voice of all scripture and the voice of the prophets. When they write scripture, that is the spirit of the Lord. But as far as for coming, there's multiple places where the Spirit of the Lord um, comes and actually says things directly to him. It's remarkable, and I would encourage you to read the book of Ezekiel and just kind of experience it for yourself, um, because it's one of those that unfortunately most of us are not familiar with. Um, but I think you heard some really familiar phrasing in there, things like Gog and so forth. Um, to think that you can understand Revelation without knowing things like Ezekiel and Daniel you can't. Uh, all of that is based in pictures back here. All of it. Um, right, so I'll give you an instance of this. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 12, right? Oh, well, you know, back up a couple of verses here. So the one seated on this chariot, cherubim, wheels with eyes all around, glorious throne, is speaking to him and is commissioning him to go out. Uh, look at verse 4. He said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. Verse 7, But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me, because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint, have I made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart and hear with your ears, and then go to the exiles, to your people, and speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. And here we have the commissioning of the prophetic. You have a job to give what the word of the Lord says, no matter the outcomes. doesn't matter if they hear. doesn't matter if they refuse to hear. You can't change the message. You can't alter the message. You can only give them, thus says the Lord. Verse 12. Then the Spirit, 
capital S. If your chapter, if your translation doesn't have capital S, it really should. That's the Holy Spirit. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Quote, Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another, and the sound of the wheels besides them, and the sound of a great earthquake. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in the bitterness and the heat of my spirit, and the hand of the Lord being strong on me. And I came to the exiles of Tel Aviv. That's not Tel Aviv. That's a different place who were dwelling by the Kabar Canal, and I sat where they were dwelling, and I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. (laughs) This guy is just, for all normal terminology, shell shock. He just kind of sits there for a week going, what just happened? A tornado shows up one day on his 30th birthday while he's almost certainly bemoaning the reality that he's not back in Jerusalem. God shows up to him, and instead of commissioning him as a priest, commissions him as a prophet, something he never desired or sought or any such thing. This is completely different than someone like Jeremiah. Jeremiah, God says, while he was still in his mother's womb, I've set you aside for this job, the prophetic ministry. He knew from before he could walk that his job was going to be a prophet. Ezekiel is nothing like that. He had a desire to be a priest. He didn't want to be a prophet. Who wants to be a prophet? Those guys have it rough. I mean, you ever heard how Isaiah died? He was sawn in two. Right? You've heard how some of these other guys die? I mean, look at what happens to Daniel, thrown in a fiery furnace, in a lion's den. These things, we have these stories because they didn't die. These were normal things to happen to the prophets. We'll kill them. We'll destroy them. This is what Jesus says. The blood of the prophets scream out from this world against the sins of your fathers. At the end of seven seven days, the word of the Lord came to him. Son of man, I've made you a watchman. Basically, it's been a week. Get up. You're a watchman for the people of Israel. Wherever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you don't warn them, nor speak, the warn, uh, speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life. That wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Basically, if I tell you to go warn the wicked person and you refuse to because you're a coward, not only will they die for their iniquity, I'm coming after you. You have a prophetic job. But if you do warn the wicked and then he doesn't turn from his wickedness, yeah, I'm not going to hold their blood on your hand. By the way, in case you're curious, this same threat sits over anyone in the office of uh, pastor. Paul applies it directly to the office of the pastor, where he says, I have not shirked back in sharing you the whole counsel of God. Nobody's blood is on my hands. Why? Because I preach to you everything. I'm not going to shy away from those things that warn and make people agitated. Verse 20, again, if a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done will not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. In other words, again, this applies to everyone. You do not pick and choose who you're sharing the word of God with if they're in your purview. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning, then you will have delivered your soul too. This is a terrible commissioning service. 
I mean, to be perfectly honest, this is like the worst job description ever. Be assured that the people you're going to warn, one, won't listen to you. And if you fail to continue to warn them, I'm going to hold you liable for them not only not listening, but also not following. Now go preach while they're going to ignore you. Oh, and by the way, they're going to try to kill you. That's a horrible, that's a horrible 30th birthday. (laughs) And as he says, the hand of the Lord was upon me there. And he said to me, arise, go out into the valley and there I will speak with you. And so I arose, went out into the valley. Behold, the glory of the Lord stood there. Like the glory that I had seen by the Kibar Canal. By the way, again, Ezekiel chapter one shows up. This resplendent, overwhelming picture of everything that's going on, the glory of the Lord comes and just sets up right in front of him. And I fell on my face, no doubt, verse 24, but the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, clunk, and he spoke with me and says, go shut yourself within your house, and you, O son of man, behold, cords will be placed upon you, and you shall be bound with them so that you cannot go out among the people. And I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth, so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, God, he who will hear, let him hear, and he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. Now we get a whole other side to everything that the book of Ezekiel is going to be about. The Lord God is not only going to put into his mouth the words that he has him say, but he's going to make his tongue stick to the roof of his mouth so that he cannot say anything else. He can't go out and say, thus says the Lord this and that, but don't worry, it's not that bad. I'm sure he'll be merciful. Like You can't say a single thing that I have not given to you to say. Who wants to trade places with Ezekiel right now? And by the way, you're going to be bound up with cords, so you can't even like do semaphore to warn them. Like, no, you're just going to sit there. You can't speak or do anything until I give you. I mean, this is the most unique version of the mouthpiece of God that is anywhere in Scripture. And focus on the fact that this is this. The Spirit of the Lord is the one speaking to him here. Nobody's ever experienced that before. The Spirit of the Lord is telling him what he's going to do with him before he does it with him. Remarkable stuff. In the midst of all the judgment and all the proclamations and everything that God is, uh, God the Spirit is giving through Ezekiel, we have this looking forward to some kind of hope. And it was addressed there. Chapter 11 is the place we're going next. It is the place where everything turns in the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 11 is kind of this... If you're reading through Ezekiel, everything looks horrible. The nations, the world... Israel, the remnant, like everything looks like bad news. Even the remnant is being carried away into captivity. Even the faithful and the righteous are being taken up. All of these things are going on and it seems this will never end. How is it that we could serve a God like this? It seems beyond our ability. And so Ezekiel 11 expresses that there is a promise that will happen one day. One day, it won't just be that you have rules and statutes on the outside. That doesn't do anyone any good with hard hearts, does it? If, if one's desires are set against the Lord, even if you have all the rules and all the 
expressions of how the world works. And even if you have wisdom literature that's coming in and saying, look, it's actually for your benefit to follow these rules because it works out so much better. It doesn't matter. Sin is an addiction far beyond any of our ability to fix it. And so God kind of speaks to us on that level. If you've ever known somebody who's addicted to substances or so forth, they're probably the first one to tell you, yeah, I know this isn't good for me, but, but I can't stop. This is what God is saying. Sin is the same thing. It's the same picture being carried out. And he says, so in order to fix it, I'm not just going to tell you the judgment and the outcome of your sins. I'm going to promise you that one day those whom I'm saving will be given new hearts and a new spirit. There's going to be something within them completely different than what they were before. It's not just new rules. It's new everything. Verse 14 in chapter 11. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord to us, this land is given for possession. Therefore, say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I remove them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come here, excuse me, when they come there, they will remove from it all the detestable things and all its abominations, and I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God." But as for those whose hearts go after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Now, again, this goes back to the very center core of what people desire. Verse 22, then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels besides them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the visions by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. Then this vision that I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. And so then he begins this long description of all the judgments that were going to be enacted uh, upon them and upon everything that's going on. But the hope that sits at the end of that is so small in the beginning. Uh, Notice we skip from chapter 3 to chapter 11. Chapters 4 through 10, most of it is horrible news. The judgment that God's going to enact not only on his people, he's going to enact on all the surrounding nations, that it's going to affect everything in creation. It's desolate really horrible news. And only that little last part at the end of chapter 11 comes and says, yeah, but still there's a bit of hope. And then the rest of the book from chapter 12 through chapter 35 expands on all of this judgment and all of this cleaning and purifying and clarifying. And then we finally get to chapter 36. And if you know anything about the book of Ezekiel, you will know 
uh, chapter 36. This is where it expands out this expression of God actually coming and giving them a new heart and a new spirit. And he actually says that new spirit will be my spirit, capital S. I will actually live within you. Now, for Ezekiel, this should be one of the most confusing things. He just saw a vision of the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and it was overwhelming. How is it that such a divine being could live within his people? How is that possible? Because that's too much to behold on the outside Because every time it happens, whether it's Isaiah or whether it's Ezekiel, they fall flat on their face because it's overwhelming in its holiness. And all they are are recognizing is their sin in light of all of this. And so God says, in the midst of this, I'm not just adding my spirit to you. That would be ridiculous. You would all die. If I just come and indwell sinful people, they'd die. Watch what he says then. Verse 22 in Ezekiel 36 is where we're picking up. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. It is for the sake of my holy name. Now stop for a second. That's a really, really good place to begin your understanding of salvation. It is not about us. It is about God, his glory, and his kingdom. And yeah, do we receive the benefits of this as those who are saved by God? Absolutely. But that's not the beginning, nor is that the end of the whole story. It is not for your sake I'm going to do this. It's for my holy name's sake. Right? We even learned this, I think, uh, the only psalm that everyone knows, Psalm 23. What does he say? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul and leads me in the path of righteousness. All this for his name's sake. It's for his name's sake. Holy and glorified. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Israel had the best chance of any group of people ever in the history of mankind to glorify God in their own ability. They were given the law, they were given their culture, they were given a land, they were given the temple, they were given a priesthood, they were given kings, they were given prophets, they were given the word of the Lord. They were given absolutely every tool to glorify God, and instead they took his name and profaned it among the nations. That was the best shot that mankind had after Adam. Adam was our best shot. Israel was our second best shot. And that's why when Jesus comes, he's actually called New Israel, and he's also called the second Adam. Why? Because now he's our best shot, and he did it. But until then everyone's response is actually to profane the holiness of God's name among all the nations. By the way, our attitude should be, as we look back at this, we would have done the exact same thing. This was the error of the Pharisees. And Jesus calls them out on it. You think you're so great because you say, if we lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have persecuted the prophets. And he's like, you're about to kill me. You. You guys who think you're better than your fathers, you're actually worse than your fathers, and you need to fill up what's lacking in their wickedness. That's, that's some fighting words there. And here, the Spirit is making clear to Ezekiel. Watch what happens. The Lord says, verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. 
which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. By the way, that was Israel's commission. They were to emulate who the Lord was. And the Lord says, fine, I'll let them know. They'll know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness in front of them. I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Watch these descriptions of salvation. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Again, God is the subject. We are the object. We aren't the ones doing the action of salvation. He is. And this is exactly how he lays it out. Again, we are 600 years before the ministry of Christ. And he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. Take those evil desires, crush them, and instead give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, one of the greatest prophecies in Scripture. And I will put my spirit, capital S, absolutely capital S, I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. In other words, I will give you new desires. Isn't that where sin comes from? Errant desires. It's not for lack of knowing the law of God. It's not even for lack of knowing what's good for us. How many times do we do things that we know are bad for us? Have you kept count or have you lost count? Just today. We've lost count. It's times innumerable. And even still, what does he say? I'm not just going to give you. He says, I'm going to put a new heart and a new spirit within you. The heart will be yours, but the spirit will be mine. Because there's no spirit of mankind that can do this. The new heart will not be the seat of the new desires. The Spirit will be the one causing this stuff. He couldn't just give us a new heart. What would we do? (laughs) We'd destroy it again. We'd harden it once again, just like what happened with Pharaoh. He had a soft heart. He heard the word of the Lord. He hardened his heart. And God says, I'm not going to let that happen again. I'm going to give you a new heart, and then I will give you a new spirit. And it's not just your spirit, my spirit. Because my spirit is the only spirit who brings life. Your spirit will let your heart go its way it wants. This is why we cannot look at the Gnostics. This is why we cannot look at New Age and say deep within us there is the spark of the divine and we just look to our spirit for the answer. No, that's as problematic as looking to your heart for the answer. You look to God for the answer. It is his spirit that does these things. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree to increase and field abundance. And that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nation. And then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Is It is not for your sake that I'm going to do this, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. <laughs> when God reiterates like that, that's kind of what Jesus, uh, when he goes truly, truly, basically sit up and pay attention. He's saying not only is this true, this is super true. 
pay attention. And when, when God says the same thing, it's not for your sake that I will act, let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Be frustrated for that. And thus says the Lord God on that day, I will cleanse you from all your iniquity. I will cause the cities to be inhabited, the waste places to be rebuilt. The desolate shall be tilled. Instead of being desolate, that is, uh, that it was in the sight of all who passed by. Watch this language. Verse 35, and they will say, this land that was desolate has become like what? Recreated. Before sin was around. It will become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and the desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord, and I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. How? That should be the first question to your mind if you're reading Ezekiel. And if you had read chapters 1 through 36, that's going to be the first thing in your mind. This is a traumatic change of events. How is it that God's going to do this? Chapter 37. Perhaps one of the most uh, elucidative pictures in the Old Testament. Ezekiel is just a treasure trove. Seriously. The hand of the Lord was upon me. Verse 1, he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the valley, in the middle of the valley. Again, transporting him every which way, all over the place. This valley was full of bones. What do you think this is going to be a picture of? He led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Now, who here has never heard of the Valley of Dry Bones? <laughs> never heard of it? Okay. Vic, you? No? Who else has never heard of it? Okay. Let's see what's going on here. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? What a bizarre question. <laughs> Of course not. They already did. Can these bones live? The real question comes down to Ezekiel. Is there anything you are aware of that can cause a big old pile of bones to come to life? No. And so how does Ezekiel answer? And I answered and says, uh, oh, Lord God, you know. <laughs> and he said to me, go prophesy over the bones. Go prophesy and say to them, oh, dry bones. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath, and yes, that is wind, that is spirit. I will cause breath to enter you. Does any of this remind you, I don't know, Genesis 2 at all? I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So... Ezekiel says, I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, by the way, that is how I read Ezekiel because he kind of interacts with the word of the Lord in this almost derisive, like fearful manner. And so he's like, so I, I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bones all match up like Lincoln locks 
And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them holding the bones together and the flesh had come upon them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them yet. And then God said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy to the wind, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, all of creation, O breath, and breathe on these dead slain bones and bodies that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet. So the picture is all these bones just assemble, sinews and flesh and skin covers them, and they're just laying there dead now. And so I prophesied, the breath came into them, they lived, they all stood up as an exceedingly great army. And then God, thankfully, gives us the interpretation. He said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up. All of our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. You shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Verse 14, And I will put my spirit, yes, capital S, within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. What do you learn from this story? What do you learn from Ezekiel about the Spirit of the Lord? What is he in the business of? Salvation. Salvation Salvation ignores death and sin or deals with it? God will not let a single sin go unjudged, not one. But that will not stop him from saving his people. And the saving of his people is not even about them. There's a narrative going on that's much bigger than Israel, that's much bigger than you or I, that's much bigger than the empires of this world. It doesn't matter how horrible everything looks. Look at this valley of dry bones. Can it get much worse than this? An exceedingly great army that was slain and left to rot. There wasn't even an empire left to bury them. And God comes back and says, can they live? Can they do anything? This is Israel. This is everyone. Israel, as far as a nation, was given every opportunity to follow the Lord. What was the outcome? A pile of bones. Can they live? Can you just keep giving them the same thing? Can you just keep on giving them everything that it, they didn't stay alive with and you expect that to live? No. No, there's only one way that such things can live. There's only one way that salvation can come. There's only one way, and that is if the Spirit of the Lord himself becomes their spirit. Puts a whole new spin on spiritual gifts in the New Testament, doesn't it? Is that for you? Is that for you? That God gives you the, the gift of prophecy or the gift of faith? Is that for you? Or is that for God and his kingdom and other Christians? You see, that was the occasion of the book of First Corinthians where all of these spiritual gifts are described. You are holding these gifts errantly by using them for yourself and acting like you are better than others in the church. 
you think you're better than others in the church. I have high doubts if you're even in the church. This is what Paul was saying to them. This is dangerous stuff. To sit here and hold the Spirit as if it is yours alone. That's not how this works. You must be in service to one another. You must be in support of one another to the benefit of the glory of God's name, not to you or even to your assembly. It is for the purposes of God. It is his name that should be praised and his name lifted up. And all of these things are not doable just because we've been convinced that they're true. And I think this is one of the things that Christians tend to fall into this problem, especially with our own kids. As long as we teach them what is right, everything should work out. That's not true. That's not true. You can't save your kids. Only God can do this. You couldn't save yourself. How could you save your kids? It's not just about teaching them what is right. It's good to teach what is right. But it's not sufficient. Their spirit, their heart will lead them astray, same as it did for you. And unless God comes and gives them his spirit, there's absolutely no words you can say that brings people out of graves. Now, I'll tell you what, if you've got an ability to walk up to a graveyard and stand there and command bones to come out and they're risen from the dead, I might listen to you a little bit more about your ability to save people. That, that's, a, that's a remarkable ability. That doesn't mean I'll believe you. I got to see if that's consistent with scripture, but that means I'm going to listen a little bit more. But if you can't even go and assemble bones, which is just a physical death, how are you expecting to cause spiritual death to go away? We can't do that. Spiritual death is far more vicious. Sin is the strongest force in the universe outside of God. It took down a third of the heavenly host. It took down all of mankind. Not a single one of us has been able to defeat it. Not one. That is why when Christ comes, what he does is always the will of God. Why? Because this is God saving his people. Matthew makes it abundantly clear. This is Emmanuel. This is not just another man walking around. If he was another man walking around and he uh, he accomplished the law, the book of Galatians tells us if there was one person that actually lived rightly, then all of us are on the hook and there should never have been a savior dying on a cross. If it were possible to save people and to raise them from spiritual death by working physical goodness, then all of us are on the hook for it. But as it is, just quoting Galatians, there was never a law that was meant to give life. That is only the job of the spirit of God. The law was meant to show us our need for it and to cause us to bemoan our sin and to show us our helpless state so that we look for an answer outside of ourselves. It is one of the reasons why parents love their children, so that they look for an authority somewhere in the world that loves them and ultimately find that in God. It is why parents are instinctually self-sacrificial when it comes to their kids. Why? Because it teaches us to look for God in the right places one who gives of himself for us. And we find that at the cross in a way that is depicted beyond ways that we can appreciate. God says, 
none of this is possible of your own. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it very, very well. Now, if you receive this prophecy, what does this do for the people listening in the days of Ezekiel? When are you going to do that? That sounds awesome, doesn't it? What an incredible thing. The Spirit of the Lord was supposed to live in the temple of God. How does he live in the people? And the Spirit of God only dwells where there's perfect holiness. How could you have perfect holiness in humans? How could it be that the Spirit of God can dwell and indwell humans? To their ears, it would have sounded incredible. Because the only place that the Lord God had dwelt before this was in tabernacles and in temples, hidden behind huge canvases to protect people from seeing the glory of God. And even then, not even in the holy place, but in the holy of holies, and not even just in the holy of holies, only shrouded between the wings of the cherubim was the glory of the Lord seated on the mercy seat. And now you're going to tell me that glory is going to live inside people from every nation? To hear it beforehand is all you do is anticipate something is going to happen in God's salvific history that is way beyond anything that we can anticipate or do. It is already 10 o'clock. Question, sir. Question. Yeah. Um, Ezekiel, did he see the Spirit of God? I. So my question was, at top of my question, was that God himself, or was that what, what he saw is unknown to us. Because what he, the only time he really des- describes what he saw is he says, what I saw was an appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. That's how the last verse in chapter 1 finishes. Right. He says, it, it's a vision. He expressed this as a vision. And so there's symbolic stuff everywhere. We're not looking to figure out, you know, what is the exact, you know, physical structure of heavenly beings. This is the wrong place to go. Ezekiel is intentionally hidden about this. He says, all of this is in a vision. And he says, even in the vision, it's not that I saw the Lord. It's not that I saw the glory of the Lord. It's not even saw that the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's that I saw a vision of the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And that enough to make me fall on my face. So what he was looking at exactly, he doesn't even know. All he knows is that that's from God and I'm not. And as, as a picture of Israel himself, the proper response is kiss the dirt. Uh, and, and what God says here is not that, you know, if you just make your mind up to do good stuff, then I'll put my spirit in you. No, he says, no, 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 I will take care of your uncleanness. I will take care of your unholiness. I will cleanse you. I will wash you with water. I will restore everything and I'll give you a new heart and I will give you my spirit. And, and so as far as for what Ezekiel was seeing on there, I have no idea. And neither did Ezekiel, uh, the descriptions, there's further descriptions of it. There's, there's almost no physicality to understand what is happening. Uh, some of them are just so bizarre. Um, you know, how is it that the wheels have rims that are as lofty as the skies with eyes full all around, and then they follow in lockstep with the living beings that are carrying around something that appears like a gemstone glowing man 
that has rainbows expressing out of them. I mean, it is just, it's not, it's not meant to be a physical description. It's meant to just be, um, I kiss the dirt because all of you would have as well. This was terrifying. Yeah. So I have no idea. I don't think anyone does. I, I, I remember I remember John MacArthur trying to talk about Ezekiel 1. He says, it is the chapter that defies exposition. If you're preaching through Ezekiel, I mean, you just, you start at the mountaintop and you have failure. And there's nothing you can do. You just have to sit there and read it and sit down. There's just nothing you can do with it. And some people go, oh, you know, well, maybe, you know, the lion's face means this, the bull. You're guessing. Nobody knows. He says likeness of, you know, so... You had to have some kind of a picture of what God looked like. Thought he looked like. I think so. Um, I think all he knew was that this is not of this world. Um, and the words were not of this world. You see that? Just by eating the scrolls. Right. It tastes like honey. When was the last time you Right. Do you remember that picture from anywhere else in Scripture? It happens in the book of Revelation. John is told to eat the scroll as well. That's right. And he says, it tastes like honey, but then when I put it in my stomach, it made me want to vomit. That's a remarkable thing. It's a continuation of the same pictures from Ezekiel. Um, all right, let's stop here. We're going to come back to Daniel. I, I'll, probably introduce, I'll probably introduce Daniel by talking a little bit more about Ezekiel next week, um, because Daniel and Ezekiel are um, contemporaries. Uh, Ezekiel just turned 30 here in this text. Uh, Daniel is a teenage boy. And uh, when his story starts. So that's all happening at the same time. They're contemporary, same generation. Um, so we'll be in Daniel. And then he gets to watch Babylon turn into Persia. And he's in both of those. Ezekiel dies before it goes to Persia. Um, he's a little bit older than Daniel. Not much. But then we see it, it's going to go quick. Because actually, before we get to the end of April, we will already be in the book of Matthew. The, 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 the end of the prophets goes quick. Um, there's not much more because God just goes silent. And I want to give you a little bit of a heads up on this. The people of Israel after Malachi wrote about the silence of God. And they bemoaned the fact that we don't even have prophets to tell us we're wrong anymore. And they said the best that we have to hope for is what's called the botkol, which is the daughter of the voice, which means we just get to go back and read the prophets. We don't have any prophets anymore. And then they founded synagogues to do this so that they would sit there and just hear their responsibility to repent and anticipate Messiah. But even that didn't work. Was there silence about 400 years? Almost five, yeah. 400 and, 450 years of a silence. Yep. So even while all the apocryphal books were being written, everyone understood God's not speaking right now. And that makes us very sad. Because even when they rebuilt Zerubbabel's temple, the glory of the Lord did not fill it. It was just a building. And that was terrifying to them. Made them all cry at the day that they uh, consecrated the temple. All right. We'll come back to Daniel next week. Thank you all.